Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you on a cold, wintry morning. Thankful we can gather together in a warm place and sing the praises of the Lord and study God's Word together. Hope it's been a good morning for you already. Now, before the sermon, I have an announcement for you. It's an opportunity, sorry, just for the ladies. So, guys, this one is not for you. Um, uh, but Cecilia had asked me to pass along to you that, ladies, there's some new Bible study opportunities coming up that we want to make you aware of. First, there's a precept ladies Bible study. It's a K. Arthur study that begins next Tuesday, the 17th of January. It'll be on Tuesday evenings at 6.15 at home with Cecilia Teal. We're going to be studying Leviticus for the first seven weeks and then going to the Sermon on the Mount. This is a K. Arthur study. So, ladies, if you know anything about K. Arthur, you go deep in the Word of God. Verse by verse study of learning what the Word of God says and how to apply it to our lives. So, again, ladies, that begins a week from Tuesday. And then there'll be one beginning in February called Found in Him by Elise Fitzpatrick. It'll be on Tuesday mornings here at Gateway at 945. Elise Fitzpatrick is a biblical counselor. To be a tremendous resource on finding your identity in Christ and just would really encourage you ladies to, to take advantage of these opportunities to go deep in the word of God and find community with other women. One other announcement as far as Drew already kind of alluded to it, but Wednesday night, sorry, this week we're starting a new teaching series called How to Understand the Bible. And I am really, really excited about this one. And so we're going to spend about 12 weeks looking at how do we understand the scriptures and how, how do we be better students of the scriptures. And so we're going to look at a series of questions each week on Wednesday night. This coming Wednesday, we're going to start with the foundation of what do we believe about the Bible. And then we're going to answer the question, can anyone understand the Bible? Do you have to have special training to get what the Bible says? Or can anyone understand the Bible? And just in case you're wondering, the answer is yes, anyone can understand the Bible. But we'll show you how and why. Then we're going to tackle the issue of translations. Why do my translations read so differently? How does, how does that impact my understanding of the Bible? And then the basic question of why should we try to understand the Bible? So we're going to hit those kind of foundational issues this week, and I'll give you on Wednesday a full schedule for the whole 12 weeks. So I hope you'll come on Wednesday. I'm super excited about the study. hope it'll be helpful for you. Well, that brings us this morning to the Gospel of John, the beginning of a new Sunday morning series. It'll probably take us the next 12 to 15 months to get through as we work verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And I am super excited about this, and I hope you are as well. So we think about the Gospel of John, what comes to your mind? When you think about this book that's been called a beloved book to people, what do you think of? Is there a favorite Bible verse that comes to mind when you think about the Gospel of John? For many, they go to John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. But perhaps your favorite Bible verse from John might be John 6.35, where Jesus is the bread of life. Never comes to him, will never hunger. Perhaps it's John ten eleven, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. Perhaps it is John eleven twenty five, where Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Perhaps it's John fourteen one, where he gives us the hope. Let not your hearts be troubled. Perhaps it's John fifteen one, where Jesus says he's the vine and we're the branches. Or perhaps it's even John seventeen nine, where Jesus says I am praying for them. We see Jesus praying for us. Perhaps you have a favorite account in the Gospel of John, something that you find only in John and nowhere else in the Scriptures, like Jesus' first miracle of turning water to wine, the story of Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the raising of Lazarus, even Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Perhaps there's some story you go to when you think of the Gospel of John. Well, the Gospel of John is one of the most beloved books in all of Scripture, and it's one of the most used in all of Scripture. People go to it for evangelism. When we're trying to share Christ with people who've never heard of Jesus one of the first things we tell them to do is open your Bible and find John. And we'll point them to John first. We do that on the university campuses. A lot of times people give out Gospel of John or hand Bibles to their friends and say, read John first. 
We do this on the mission context. One of the first things we have people read in other countries when we hand them a Bible in God's language, or in, in, in their language of God's word, we'll bookmark John and say, start right here. How, how about even with your own children? Often we're teaching them the Bible stories at bedtime as they were children. We often would go to John to help them understand. Even some of their first memory verses were John 3.16. We use John in an evangelistic way with our own children. It's been said that probably more people have come to faith in Christ reading John than any other book of the Bible. But it's not just for evangelism that we go to John. It's one of the best books for discipleship. It's one of the first places we start new believers. When someone says, when we come to faith in Christ, we'll start reading in the Bible. The first thing we tell them is, go to John. You know, it's one of the first places we start for fundamental discipleship. But yet it's not just for young Christians. It's for very mature believers. There's deep theological themes, deep profound insights will challenge even the most mature believer in Christ. And the, the appeal of John is so much so that when we come to the end of this journey of this life and we're getting ready to see Jesus face to face, the book that's most requested usually by the elderly on their deathbed when they want someone to read scripture to them is John. So this book starts with children learning it and it goes all the way to our deathbeds. As such, countless pastors have preached countless sermons on the Gospel of John. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the great um, European preachers, he preached 109 sermons working through this book. I promise you I'm not going to go that long with this. But, you know, he did 109 sermons. And as we come up this year on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, our thoughts may go to Martin Luther's some this year. And this is one of Martin Luther's favorite books. He preached on it regularly from the Wittenberg Chapel where, where he pastored on this. And he loved it so much he actually once said that if a tyrant was going to try to destroy Christianity and wipe out the scriptures, if just one copy of the Gospel of John and one copy of the Gospel or one copy of Romans was spared, all of Christendom would be saved. Luther had that much confidence in the message of John that all he needed was John and Romans and Christendom would be spared no matter what tyrant tried to do what on that one. With such love, people have tried to describe John in many analogies, and they all fall short. I've heard people try to describe the Gospel of John as being like a pool that's comfortable enough for a baby to wade in it in a shallow end, yet deep enough that an elephant can go swim in it because there's enough water in it. And John is like that in a lot of ways. I've also heard John described as being like a symphony. There's all these sounds coming together, but all coming together in unison, building towards a climax to a main theme that kind of resonates together at the very end. And so with it being such a rich book and so much that can be said about it, we're going to spend plenty of time through it. Today, I'm going to give us more of an overview of the Gospel of John. So before we get into our typical going verse by verse by verse through it, we're going to do more of a big picture today about John so we can better understand the context and better understand what we're going to be seeing in these weeks to come. And so I want to use a series of five questions to help us understand what we're going to be reading. And so the first question for us today is simply the question of who is John? If we're going to spend more than 50 weeks looking at this book, it might help us know who is actually writing this, right, to us. So we'll have some context. So first of all, who is John? Well, there's several things we know about John. First of all, John was the son of wealthy, believing parents. He was the son of wealthy, believing parents. We're going to have some scriptures on the screen. We're going to go through them fairly quickly. But first is Mark chapter 1, verse 19. I want you to see where we're getting this from. In Mark 1, 19, it says, And going on a little farther, he, Jesus, saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And then in verse 20, we see immediately he, Jesus, called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They followed Jesus. Now, what we get from this is that Zebedee, John's father, had a boat he owned, and he had hired servants. Those are all clues to us that he was a fairly wealthy man. Most people at the time did not have boats that they owned. They did not have hired servants. So John came from a wealthy family. 
Now, I said it was from a believing family. How do we get that? Well, we don't know much about Zebedee's faith, John's father. We do know, though, there's no recorded objection to his son dropping the net and following Jesus. We don't have, there's no story, and we can't argue completely from science, but there's no story of him being like, son, wait, no, no, this is your job, come back. There's no objection recorded for us. But the greater evidence comes from the mother. And John's father was Zebedee. His mother's name was Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E. Salome is seen several times in Scripture. First in Matthew chapter 27, she was at the crucifixion. So in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, it says, here's the context of what's happening. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was a son of God. So just to get you in the context of what's happening here in Matthew, this is the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. So there have been ladies who were not only there at the crucifixion, but been with Christ in these final days, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So John's mother, her name we know from other places, was Salome, was at the crucifixion with Mary. But she was not just at the crucifixion. In Mark chapter 16, we see that she was also at the tomb on what we would celebrate on Easter morning. So in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, there she is, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And then in verse 2, we see, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And so the guy who's writing the gospel of John for us, his mom was at the crucifixion. His mom was one of the first ones to see the empty tomb of the resurrection. But there's one other thing we know about her in Scripture, and she gets kind of a bad rap for this one. And that's in Matthew chapter 20, because she, asks, she makes a request on behalf of her boys to Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, John's mother does this. So then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so this is again John, came up to him, being Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, Jesus, she asked him for something. And in verse 20, and Jesus said to her, What do you want? She, this is Salome, this is John's mother, said to Jesus, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So John's mother had this really, really bold request. And yes, there was a mistaken request, but there's one thing that is significant of this. She understood the kingdom of God was coming. And so before we just write her off on this and throw stones, she got the fact there was a kingdom that was still to come and that Christ was the head of the kingdom. She understood the Old Testament prophecies. As we get through John and we see all these references to the Old Testament, where did John learn it from? His mom. His mom, I believe, faithfully taught him the Scripture. Though she had this mistaken request, it shows that she at least knew the prophecies and the promises of what was to come. And this is a side note. We cannot prove it from Scripture. But many scholars and theologians believe that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John's mother, Salome, were actually sisters. Again, we can't argue that from Scripture, but when you go back into early church history, there's an argument that they were actually sisters, which would make Jesus and John potentially cousins. But we're not going to build a theology on that. Just know that that is out there, that some people think that. So, first of all, John was a son of wealthy, believing parents. He also is, is believed by, at least in the tradition of the early church, to have been originally a disciple of John the Baptist. So the Apostle John was originally believed to be a disciple of John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, verse 35, is where we begin to get an allusion to that. So just follow along with us and we'll see where it comes from. The next day, again, John was standing, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Then in verse 36, we see, and he looked at Jesus. So John the Baptist looks at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now in verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they, these two disciples, followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them, these two disciples following, and said to them, 
what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And then verse 39, he, Jesus, said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. Stay with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So they, the, the, the gospel only records for us one of the two names. The early church attributes the other person to being John the Apostle. Because you'll see as we go through today and go through the months to come, John never refers to himself in the Gospel of John. He omits his name in there. And so if he's here saying two disciples were part of John the Baptist who followed Jesus, one was named Andrew, and they just ignores the other one. He wasn't trying to slight someone. It was most likely John himself on that. And again, that was what the view of most of the early church. What we do know is though he had been a disciple of John the Baptist and saw Jesus, Jesus was one who actually sought him out and called him. And I already referenced Mark chapter 1 that we already read when he was mending his nets. And Jesus calls him and says, I'll make you fishers of men. John drops his nets, leaves his dad Zebedee, and goes and follows Jesus. He becomes one of the twelve disciples, one of the apostles. And we believe he's probably the youngest of all the twelve disciples who followed Christ. John is rarely mentioned alone in Scripture. Usually you see John in the context of two others, Peter, James, and John. These three were like Jesus' inner circle, if you will. Jesus invested in them more than any of the other disciples. And if you look at the pattern of Christ, I commend to you, there's a book by Robert Coleman called The Master Plan of Evangelism, The Master Plan of Discipleship. If you need a good book to read in 2017, put that one on your list. I'm sure I'll give you lots more to recommend in the months to come. But there's a good one for you starting off right now. But if you look at the pattern of Christ, he, he taught the multitudes. He had more that followed him that were closely, but he had the twelve. And among the twelve, he even had the three and so Peter, James, and John saw something that other people did not see, including other disciples. They were the only ones with him when Jesus raised a dead girl back to life. They were the only ones with Jesus at the transfiguration. They were the only three who got to follow Jesus further into the Garden of Gethsemane. And so John, with Peter and James, saw things as an eyewitness that other people on earth, no one else on the planet, ever saw. And so he was an eyewitness of things. What do we know about John's personality? Well, he was very impetuous. He was very rash. And very bold, at least in his early days. In fact, when Jesus called him in Mark 3, he actually named him a son of thunder. So if you, want to give, if you name one of your friends a son of thunder, you think of why you would probably do that. I mean, he was very impetuous, very bold. And we see just two examples in Scripture of that. Both come in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 49, there was a man who was casting out demons. And basically, John goes to Jesus and says, stop him, he's not one of us. And he saw this guy casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and because he wasn't an approved person, John was ready to jump in and stop the guy. But perhaps his boldness is seen even more a few verses later, when a Samaritan village, it's also in Luke 9, refuses to welcome Jesus. John's one says, Master, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? So when his master's fame had been really dishonored in a lot of ways, he wanted to call down fire from heaven and wipe out the village. He was that kind of bold. Interestingly, in those times, Christ would correct him and we see as he ages a more mature disciple. What do you know about later in life? Well, when Christ is on the cross, John is the one Jesus looks to and says, this is your son to Mary. And basically John takes Mary in when Christ dies on the cross. And John takes Mary into his home in Jerusalem per Jesus' request. We see him later in Acts chapter 8. He's a leader in the early church. In fact, he's one of the ones sent to Samaria to verify that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Samaritans, that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. He's one of the ones that was sent to go say, okay, you're trusted, go. Verify this is really true for us, that the Samaritans have received the Holy Spirit. Later in life, John moved to Ephesus, where he taught disciples. He was a faithful disciple-maker, and most likely he wrote the Gospel of John while he was in Ephesus, as he did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then later in life, he got banished 
to an island called the Isle of Patmos. It's where the Roman Empire sent their political criminals, and from there he wrote Revelation, our insight into the end times and what happens there. And the tradition is he lived to be an old man. The tradition from the church is he lived to be 68 years old, past, 68 years past Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So big picture, who is John? He came from a wealthy, believing family. He was a disciple of John the Baptist, who when Jesus called, he followed Jesus. He saw things that only two other people ever saw because he was in Christ's inner circle of people. He was going to care for Jesus' mother. He helped lead the early church. He discipled people in Ephesus, and he gives us a glimpse into the end times. That's the guy who's writing what we're going to be reading over the next 50 or so Sunday mornings. So second question, how, where, and when did John write this? So let's go to a few things at the same time here. How, where, and when? So what is the background of this particular book? Now, first of all, there's a debated question of whether or not John actually wrote this because the book is technically anonymous. You'll never see at the beginning. This is a book from John to help you understand. Like, John's name is not in here. So it's been debated some. It's not been debated by people who believe the Bible for the most part. And this has been really a non-issue for Christians to accept the authority of Scripture. It's mostly coming from skepticism on this. All of the early church ascribed this book to John's authorship. And it's not just the, the fact that, that the early church thought this. The text itself seems to indicate that. The internal evidence of the text is that whoever wrote this was an eyewitness and saw things as someone who had to have walked with Jesus to know these conversations and know what would have happened and that it was obviously written by an eyewitness. And like I mentioned earlier, he never refers to himself by name. In fact, he calls himself simply the apostle whom Jesus loved. Why would he do that? Why would he just tell us? It was like For us, it would be like, well, it makes sense. Why don't you just put your name in there? But if you think about the fact, if potentially he, it is true that he was a disciple of, of John the Baptist, John the Baptist's whole philosophy was he wanted Christ to increase and he wanted to decrease. If John's been influenced by that, John the Apostle, he wants Christ to be the focus, not himself. And so it makes sense that he would drop his name out. This would not be all about John. It would be about Christ and what Christ has done. He happens to be the eyewitness whom Jesus loved who saw these things in it. Furthermore, if someone else wrote the Gospel of John besides John and listed all these other apostles and neglected John, either it was a huge slight or a major omission. So you put all that together and we're pretty convinced that John was the one who wrote this. How did John write the Gospel of John? Well, the answer for us comes in his Gospel in John chapter 16, verse 12. And I want you to see that one up on the screen. This is Jesus talking here. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He, the Spirit, will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. Whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Then in verse 14, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So how did John write the Gospel of John? Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That what we have here is not just John's perspective on things. We have the very inspired words of God given by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of truth who has come and enlightened John and brought to memory the things Jesus said and put all this together for us. And so really, John is the penman of it, but the Holy Spirit is ultimately the author of this because he's brought to John's remembrance all these things. And friends, as we study this book, our confidence is the same Holy Spirit who dwelt within John to enable him to write this gospel. As, as a child of God, the same Holy Spirit dwells within us to illumine this text and to make it come alive to us. And that gives us hope as we approach the gospel of John and all of its depths. So, so how did he write it? Through the help of the Holy Spirit. Where did he write it? Probably Ephesus. Ephesus was an important city in the Roman Empire. That would be around Turkey today. It's where John resided for many of his latter years, and we believe that's where he wrote this book as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. When did he write it? 
That's a more tough question there. We know it was the first of John's writing. He wrote this prior to writing 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, prior to Revelation. Somehow it was between A.D. 55 and A.D. 95, and I can only narrow it down to about a 40-year window for you. So John wrote somewhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 95. Either closer to 55 or closer to 95, I don't know which. Different people have different opinions on that of when he wrote and why. Their big, <clears throat> their big issue is the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and there's no reference to that here. So either John wrote prior to the temple's destruction in A.D. 70, or he wrote 10 or 15 years later when that was kind of a non-issue anymore. I don't know which one. Your guess is as good as mine. If you have an opinion on that one, I'll see you hear it later. So either A.D. 55 to A.D. 95 this was written. What's important, though, soon after this gospel was written, it was accepted by the church as scripture. Very soon after, whether it was 55, whether it was 95, as soon as basically it was, it was published, the church accepted it. And what's so interesting, there was already Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the last of the gospels. We're going to get to that in just a minute that were written. But as soon as the church saw it, they basically bound it with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the church had already kind of moved away from using scrolls the way that you know, the Jewish people had you know, kind of read things. And they developed something called a codex. And they would take loose-leaf pages, basically, and they put them together, and they would glue them or sew them together, kind of like a primitive binding of like we have for a book. And so early on in the early church, they took John, and they stuck it in a codex with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they simply called this codex, this book, The Gospel. And then each chapter was according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. So if you look at your Bible, your title probably says something like The Gospel According to John. That's coming back from the early church codex, where they simply t- title each chapter according to. And so the gospel according to John here. But that raises the question, why do we need a fourth gospel? If we already have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, our, our fourth question here, or our third question here is, why do we need another gospel? Well, first of all, what is a gospel? The word gospel means euangelion in the Greek. It means good news. It's the image of someone coming into a town announcing great news that will excite the people, usually it's the idea of victory. What is it? It's the news of Christ and what he's done. The record of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. It's a combination of what Jesus did, but what he said, his dialogues, his discourses, and how people responded. So the Gospels show us what Jesus did, what he said, and how people responded to it. And there's four in Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell one story. It's not four stories, it's one story from four perspectives. And friends, we should be thankful for that. That helps us better understand the life of Christ. I mean, think about it this way. As we're leaving the sanctuary day, if we're walking out there, all of a sudden we hear this like, boom, and there's this massive wreck out there on Bell Road. If three or four of us run over there, and a police officer says, hey, write down what's going on. It's like a massive wreck. It causes a lot of attention. And reporters come and say, we want information. Well, the engineer in the room might be looking like, that person had to be going at least 70 miles an hour. They're coming at a 20-degree angle, and they're going to record for us those details of kind of what happened on that. The doctor in the room may run out there and talk about what happened to the body and where people were cut and torn and bruised and things like that. And the person in the church who has the gift of compassion is going to talk about the, the personalities, what happened, the person crying and despair and hopelessness and so, you know, all those type things. And those three accounts are not three different stories, so they're going to read differently. But because of the personalities of the people recording them, when you put them all together, you have a much fuller picture of the wreck that happened out there on Bell Road. How much more so when people transcribe the life of Jesus? The Son of God who walked on this earth, who did miracles and taught all these amazing things. You put four guys who have four different backgrounds and four different family lives and four different experiences, and you have them record for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what Jesus did and said and how people responded. 
You're going to get some differences, not in content, but differences in perspectives. And you put those together, and we get such a more full, rich understanding of who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have so much in common. They're often called the synoptic gospel. Synoptic means common because they've written with similar perspectives, similar worldviews. But you get to John, and John is really, really different. So that leads to our next question. What is so unique about the gospel of John. What is unique about the Gospel of John? First of all, what's unique about John is what John does not include. If you go to the Gospel of John, you're not going to find a record of Jesus' birth. John never mentions Jesus' baptism. He never mentions Jesus' temptation. He never shares a parable, which is one of Jesus' favorite ways of teaching. He never talks about the kingdom of God, which is a major emphasis of Christ. He never shows the casting out of demons. He doesn't even include the Lord's Supper, the betrayal kiss by Judas, or the ascension. None of those things are in the Gospel of John. But there's things in the Gospel of John that we find in none of the other Gospels. Only in John do we find out what happened during Jesus' first three years of ministry. Only in John do we find the first miracle, the turning water to wine. Only in John do we find the story of Nicodemus and learning what it means to be born again. Only in John do we have the account of the Samaritan woman at the well and the teaching on living water. Only in John do we have the raising of Lazarus. And only in John do we have the great I am statements of Christ. And it's also in John where we best understand the geography of Palestine because he goes into such great detail, even describing brooks and, and the way the landscaping is. We also have unique to John, more than anywhere else in Scripture, descriptions of people misunderstanding who Jesus is. An interesting theme we're going to look at in the months to come. But we see over and over in John in ways other Gospels don't describe people misunderstanding or refusing to believe. We see the Jews being confused about how Christ is really the temple. We see Nicodemus being confused about being born again. The Samaritan woman not understanding living water. The disciples not getting Jesus has food that they don't know about. The Jews not being understanding about how Jesus is living bread. The disciples being confused about where Jesus is going. So John records for us in ways that others don't. The misunderstandings, the failures to understand of people. Why? Because he's going to teach us lessons from that. He's going to show us what we are so prone to do, but we as followers of Christ must not do. Ultimately, Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus more on the events of what happened in the life of Christ. John focuses much more on the meaning behind those events. So, for example, in the other Gospels, you can find the feeding of the 5,000. We're familiar with that, that miracle and what Christ did. But only in John does he include that miracle. But then he follows it up where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Only in John do we find that miracle coupled with the explanation of how Christ is the bread that satisfies. That also means that in John, and only in John, do you really see, a, a, I guess you want to call them competing dualisms, these themes to help us understand contrast of light and dark, life and death, sight and blindness, the world above and the world below. And all these are things John includes to help us understand his message. Which leads us to our fifth and final question for the morning. What is his message and what is his purpose? So what is John's purpose and what is John's message? When John wrote the Gospel of John, there was already Matthew, Mark, and Luke already in circulation, already in existence, already used by the church. Why did he write it? We can go get books upon books that speculate on why John, John wrote what he's trying to respond to and what he might have had in mind. We don't need that. He told us why he wrote it. It's massively laid out the way this book is done. We do not have to speculate of what his purpose or meaning was behind doing this. It's almost like a good academic paper. So for the you in college, or the, those of you who have been in college and you have to write an argument paper, you're taught early on, right, that you write, you, you, in the first paragraph you state your thesis, right? 
then you, 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 you support your thesis, and at the end you basically say, see, I told you so. You, know, you kind of build your paper around that way. You have your introduction with your thesis, you build your argument, and you bring a conclusion, which the conclusion is, see, I told you so normally on that. And that's exactly what John's going to do. At the beginning of John, he's going to give us his thesis. He's just spent 20 chapters arguing it, and then he's going to say, now look, this is what I've been trying to do for the last 20-something chapters. And so open your Bibles to John chapter 1. Don't worry, that was not just the introduction for the message we're going to spend normally. Don't worry. Next week is where we start digging in deep. I just want you to see John's purpose. So if I see the panic, we're, you'll still get to lunch at your normal time. Don't worry. John chapter 1. I want you to see John's thesis of what he's setting out to prove. And then we're going to go to the end of the book. And I want you to see where he says, see, I told you so, basically. And then the rest of this year is going to be us in the middle, the arguments where we try to see that happen. <coughs> so John chapter 1, look in verse 1. Here's John's thesis over the first about four verses or so. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now go down to verse 14. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's John's thesis. Here's the opening of his, his argument here, if you will. And his thesis is simply very simple. Jesus is God. I mean, that's it. That's his thesis here. He says, in the beginning, before time began, that Christ was preexistent. This is what we talked about Christmas morning. If you remember back to Christmas morning, I know Christmas Saturday seems like a long time ago. But Christmas morning, our whole theme that morning was Jesus is the eternal king who came to rescue us. That Jesus did not begin as a baby in the manger. He was preexistent. Before time began, Jesus already was. Jesus does not have a beginning. He always has been God. And so John begins, in the beginning was the Word. How do you know the Word was Jesus? That's why we read verse 14, because he tells us that in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John is showing us that the word is just a name, a title for Jesus, the one who is the creator, the one who is over all things. He goes on in verse 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And we can't do justice to it in our time this morning, but that's an, that's an allusion to the Trinity here. That God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, who is God, was also with God. There's distinctions. There's one God, three persons, what we call the Godhead. And we see some of that distinction right there, that Jesus, though he was God, was also with God, the Father. And then we come to that final phrase of verse 1, and the Word was God. There's John's thesis for the whole book. Jesus, the Word, is fully God. He is the, he is the one who was preexistent before all things, and he is fully God. And we're going to unpack that a lot more starting next Sunday. But for now, suffice it to say, John's thesis is simply that Jesus is God. And so what John's going to do over the next 20 chapters is try to prove to you over and 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 over that Jesus is God. And to do that, he's going to show us initially about seven big signs that prove that Jesus is God. But what makes this book so helpful is he's going to make his case with both Jews and Gentiles in mind. So for Gentiles, non-Jews, us in this room... John's going to interpret the Jewish customs. He's going to explain the things to us so we're like, oh, that's what that's really about. He's going to explain Jewish words to us. He's going to describe Palestinian geography so we can actually feel like we're there. 
And so this is one part of the appeal of John is he keeps non-Jews in mind and helps us make sense of this proof that Jesus is God, which ultimately takes us back to the Old Testament. And so we have to understand some of these Jewish customs. But he also keeps the Jews in mind of this. He's going to show how the prophecies show that Christ is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch in the weeks to come. He's going to not only show how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, but how Jesus fulfilled the types, the symbols of the Old Testament. We'll see week after week in here how Jesus is the Lamb of God, how Jesus is the ladder to heaven, how Jesus is the new temple, how Jesus gives new birth, how Jesus is a serpent lifted up in the wilderness, how Jesus is the bread of God, and on and on. As John lays out for us, and for the Jewish people especially at the time, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies and the types. And so after 20 chapters of doing that with Jew and Gentile in mind, we get to where he kind of gets to the end and says, See, I told you. Now here it is again, his conclusion. So go to John chapter 20, verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. And here is where John wraps it up for us, so to speak, where he brings it all to a conclusion. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Then in verse 31. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his, in his name. So, what did, so John tells us his purpose in John chapter 1, that the Word was God. He wants us to believe that Jesus is God. Now, he spends 20 chapters arguing that for us, showing us signs, showing us proofs that Jesus is God. And we come here to verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, he goes back in verse 30. And he says, there's many other things not written. Well, we kind of already mentioned that earlier. In verse 30, we, he's telling us he didn't record everything. I mentioned things he omits, like Jesus' birth, his baptism, his temptation. There's a lot of other things. In fact, if we go one page over to chapter 21, verse 25, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he's saying, I can't tell you everything. Again, this is the guy who saw the transfiguration. This is the guy who saw Jesus raise dead people alive. This is the guy who was in Gethsemane with Christ. This guy saw so much more. And he's saying, I, I'm not telling you everything. But he picked certain things. Why did he record certain things for us? And why did he admit others? Well, he admitted things that weren't necessary for his purpose. He had a thesis to convince you that Jesus is God. And so he recorded for you the things that you needed to know, a determined selection of his experience with Christ, so that you could come to believe that. Now look back at chapter 20, verse 31 one more time. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, I want to remind us this is, that studying John is not some impersonal, academic, field, just theological pursuit for the sake of theology's sake. John wrote to convince you, to convince me, that Jesus is the one and only God, that he is the one true God who came to rescue us. But he wrote it so that we might believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is not writing so you come away going, man, there's some cool facts about Jesus. He didn't write so you come away going, man, I didn't know that about the, the landscape of Palestine. Or, man, that's really cool Jesus did those miracles. He didn't write to be cool. He didn't write just to give us information. He wrote so that we might believe and that by believing we might have life in Christ's name. John wrote this so that your life and my life is radically changed because we encounter the living Christ in the pages of this book. And so, friends, can I remind us as we go through the Gospel of John that faith in the Bible, believing in the Bible, is never just intellectual knowledge. It is knowledge that changes our life. 
It's knowledge that leads to a difference in our life. It involves a whole way of life. It's calling us to commit ourselves to the Lord. And so as we go through John, I mentioned earlier that more than any other gospel, John shows us the misunderstandings and the rejections people had to the message. John calls for a response. As we go through these pages, again, this is not just us going, that's nice, that's an interesting tidbit or trivia in life of Christ. Everything in this book calls us to respond. Am I going to believe and have life in his name? And either we commit ourselves to this Christ who is God, who's laid out the pages of John, and we find life in light, or like many in John, we refuse to believe and we remain lost and continue to walk in darkness. All throughout the Gospel of John, people come face to face with that choice. We see Samaritans come face to face with that choice. We see government officials come face to face with that choice. Religious leaders, adulterous women, blind people, lame people, even the disciples come face to face with this choice of who is this Jesus. And friends, as we work through this book, you and I come face to face with that same question over and over. Who is this Jesus? And it will call us for a response. Like I mentioned at the beginning, the Gospel of John is used both for believers and for non-believers. It's written for both evangelism and discipleship, both. So wherever you are in your faith journey, John is going to call you to some type of response with this. And so as we begin to wrap it up this morning, my question for you is this. When you look at your life, does your life demonstrate a life that what you see in John 31, that is not only believing that Jesus is God, but a life that is marked that because of that belief, you have life in his name? When you look at your life, do you see a life that has changed because you've encountered the living Christ, who is God, that you see throughout these pages? And so I want to invite all of us on a journey this year as we go through John. If you're not sure where you are in relationship to Christ, I invite you to join us as we work through the Gospel of John to come look and be amazed. See the proof, see the evidence we're going to lay out over these next 21, 22 chapters of John. And come to believe that Jesus really is God, and if you believe in him, you can have life. In his name. For some of you in this room, you really believe you believed in Christ, but you're not experiencing that abundant life, that transformation that discipleship and following Christ really entails. And so I invite you on a journey as we go through John to come get pushed out of your comfort zone in the weeks to come. To come see that following Christ means we obey, we worship, we serve. Come be amazed at Christ and let it lead to the transformation the gospel is designed to do in your life all along. But for some of you in this room, as I begin to know your stories over the last six or seven weeks, man, some of you just blessed me. You, you, you've been steadfast in your love for Jesus. Your life shows the transformation that the gospel's made, that you have believed in Christ, and you have fullness of life in his name. Even if that's you, come jump in the deep end of the pool. That's my invitation to you on this journey. Remember I said earlier that, that the gospel of John is like a pool where there's a shallow end, where even a little baby can wade into it. There's a deep end that can hold even the biggest elephant. Even if you are mature in your faith, there are wonders of the gospel of John in the deep end. I invite you on this journey this year to come jump into the deep end of the pool and be amazed afresh of who Christ is and what he's done and may it lead you to deeper worship. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I do thank you that you have given us your word to us. God, that you have not left us without revelation you not left us wondering who Jesus is. And God, I'm thankful that we have four Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all with different audiences in mind, all with different backgrounds. And as we read all these four together, Lord Jesus, we see such a fuller picture of who you are, what you came to do, what it means to follow you. Lord, I pray as we begin this journey through the Gospel of John this year, God, that you would use it to stir our hearts towards you. 
Lord, if there's people who come to Gateway week after week who've never trusted you, I pray that as we go through the Gospel of John, that they will come face to face with that decision that people throughout the Gospel of John at the time had to come face to face with. Is Christ really God? And if so, what will I do with him? Lord, for many in this room, though, they've walked with Jesus many years and they've followed you. Lord, I pray as we go through the Gospel of John for them, that you would give them fresh eyes to see familiar texts. God, that you would open our eyes to the wonders of your word and we would just come away week after week amazed at your greatness, amazed at your power, amazed at your glory, and amazed at your love for us, sinners like us. And God, may, as we say through the Gospel of John, may it lead us to know you in deeper and fuller ways so that we might follow you, serve you, and worship you. And Lord, I pray now as we go throughout this day and the week to come that, Lord, you would turn our minds to the things of you. I pray as we go throughout today that we wouldn't just close our Bibles, put our Bibles down, and go about our own way. God, you would give us a reminder throughout today and throughout this week ahead that Jesus, that you are God. And would you throughout this whole week, not just today, remind us of the call that we are to have the fullness of life in your name, that we're to experience you, that we're to walk with you. So would you be drawing us, Holy Spirit, would you fill us and be drawing us that when we come to next Sunday, we come here not just having gone through the motions of the week, but we come in next Sunday experiencing the fullness of walking with you, Lord Jesus, every day this week. Give us grace for that task, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we close in singing?